Luke 23. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This year during Lent, we are looking at the seven last words that Jesus spoke from the cross. And I've never done a series on the last words before. I've never done much study on them, to be honest. I've heard them again and again and again on one Good Friday after another and have appreciated them, but only when diving into study for this sermon series have I come to see how just incredibly rich and potent these last seven words are. By the time we hear the first of these seven words, Jesus has already been arrested, tried, mocked, whipped, and nailed to a cross. There are only hours left of his life. He is struggling for breath, his body breaking even as it tries to support him, and each movement is agony. But in the midst of this agony, he speaks seven words, utters seven sentences that are deeply intentional, profoundly countercultural, and have the power, in fact, to change the world. And he starts with what is perhaps the most surprising of all of these sentences. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is such a surprising sentence that some of the first scribes who were writing down the gospel stories left the whole thing out. They recorded six last words instead of seven. And we don't know for certain why they left it out. It could be that they were all working from one person's faulty memory or that someone had just left it out and they were all copying off of the same guy as one does. But it's not hard to imagine that they might have just left this sentence out on purpose. Because it is a surprising, alarming, downright troubling sentence. It's one we don't think Jesus could actually mean. It's not one we believe he might actually say. One commentator I read said that of all the troubling lines in scripture, this line troubled him more than any other. And if we unpack what Jesus is saying here, then it's not hard to see why. Let's start with the first two words. Father, forgive. Jesus is in pain. He's in agony. He's at the end of his rope. In a few minutes, he will cry out that he has been abandoned by God. That is how much despair he is feeling. And this is the moment then that any of us 
would be praying for ourselves, yelling at God, crying out to God, begging the Father to step in and do something to rescue us from this pain, or at the very least provide some solace, some comfort in the face of it. And Jesus will eventually pray on his behalf. But first, the first thing he does is pray for others. He thinks about other people in the midst of his own torment. That makes these words surprising. Then we go on. Father, forgive them. We might be okay if Jesus were praying for good people, for innocent people. If he was praying for his disciples, for his followers, for his family, praying that the Father might protect them and strengthen them and even forgive them their moments of doubt. But no, he says, Father, forgive them. And that them includes everyone. It includes the religious leaders who plotted against him and arrested him and use their power and influence to get rid of the pesky rabble rouser who had threatened the world they worked so hard to protect. It includes the soldiers who beat him, mocked him, laughed at him, shoved a thorny crown on his head and then drove nails into his hands and feet. And it includes the onlookers. Crucifixion was a public death. It was a humiliating death. To be crucified was to be deemed so unfit to live as to not even be human. The Romans said such a person was damnatio ad bestia, condemned to the death of a beast. This death was meant to be obscene and not to be done in an enclosed courtyard, hidden away from the rest of the world, but along the sides of roads public billboard telling passers-by, this person isn't like the rest of us. This person, this non-person, deserves your ridicule. And so the people who walked past a crucifixion knew the role they were meant to play. They knew that it was their job to increase the humiliation of this non-person by jeering at them and mocking them and taunting them. The theologian Fleming Rutledge says crucifixion is an enactment of the worst that we are, an embodiment of the most sadistic and inhuman impulses that lie within us. And Jesus asks the Father to forgive them, these people, the embodiment of the very worst of what it means to be human which is alarming to us because we know that Jesus said some other things about forgiveness before this word from the cross. We know that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 
And we know that a little later on in that sermon, Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. And a part of that prayer is, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We know that to be a follower of Jesus is not just to admire what Jesus did, but to do what Jesus did. And if he is up there on that cross, forgiving the very people who put him there, if he is forgiving the very worst in people, then that means we have to, too. And if that doesn't make you feel distinctly uncomfortable, then you're probably not thinking hard enough about it. Because we have a hard time forgiving people. St. Augustine said once in a sermon that at his church, people sometimes just left out the line about forgiveness in the Lord's Prayer because they knew that they would be lying if they said it out loud. To pray that prayer is to make a commitment, to make a covenant with God. I will forgive my debtors, so please also forgive me in the same way. But do we forgive our debtors? Do we forgive the people who wrong us? The person who cuts us off on the highway? The person who says an incredibly hurtful thing to us in front of other people, no less? The person who laughed at our childhood dream? The person who didn't love us the way we loved them? The person who stole something from us? In 2015, a white supremacist named Dylan Roof walked into Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. He sat in a Bible study for a while, and then he shot and killed nine people attending that Bible study. And at his sentencing, two years later, Felicia Sanders, the mother of one of those victims, looked at Roof and said, I forgive you. And my first thought when I heard that was, really? Can you really forgive him? There is something bewildering about that kind of forgiveness. Because it is so hard to let go of our anger. It's so hard to let go of our desire for revenge, of wanting to level the playing field. Because that would be justice after all, wouldn't it? And isn't our God a God of justice? Well, yes, he is a God of justice. Which is why this conversation that God the Son is having with God the Father takes place on a cross. It's why the Son had to die. Because the wages of sin is death. And on the cross, Jesus took on that punishment so the ones he loved would not have to. Which brings us to the third surprising, troubling, and downright flabbergasting thing about this first word from the cross. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Maybe the ancient scribes left this line out of their first manuscripts because they were just a little bit embarrassed for Jesus. Because this just isn't how forgiveness works. We might forgive someone, 
but only if they apologize first. That's the order. Someone does something wrong, they recognize that they did something wrong, they apologize for doing something wrong, and then we forgive them. We can't forgive someone if they don't acknowledge that they acted badly in the first place. Otherwise, what is to keep them from just continuing to act badly? Of course, the soldiers on Good Friday probably didn't think they were sinning against God. They were just following orders. They didn't know that they were killing the one who governed the whole world. And the religious leaders, well, they thought that they were doing what their religion required of them. This man had blasphemed, claimed to be the son of God, and scripture was clear on what the punishment for such blasphemy was. They didn't know they were actually killing the son of God. And the mocking onlookers, well, they were just following the custom of the day. They had been told all of their lives that this was what you did to those being crucified. Those on the cross were less than human. After all, no harm done. They didn't know they were mocking a man who was, in fact, more than human, who was divine. They didn't know what they were doing. And neither do we. Because that's the real kicker of this story, right? When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, he doesn't just mean the soldiers and the religious leaders and the onlookers. He means me. He means you. Jesus died to save us from the punishment we deserve, too. It's our own sins that put Jesus up on the cross, which means his words of forgiveness are for us. And I don't know about you, but I know that I have a hard time admitting when I've done something wrong. I don't even know I've done wrong a lot of the time. And when I do, well, I would rather just take that knowledge and drop it in between the couch cushions where no one's going to find it for a very long time. Will Willimon, a theologian and preacher, said it this way, if you are awaiting me to know, to admit, to confess my complicity, my sin, you will wait an eternity, and I am not eternal. Only God is that. If God's going to wait to talk with me until I first admit that I'm a sinner, the conversation will never occur. I'll be too defensive, too deceitful in my guilt. I would rather die. But God's not going to wait. God sends God's son to the cross because he is done waiting. Because our God, more than anything, longs to be in relationship with his beloved creation. Some people forgive others so that they can let go and walk away from that person freed of whatever burden they were carrying. But Jesus does the exact opposite. Jesus forgives us so he can get close to us. 
Forgiveness, says Williman, is what it costs God to be with people like us who, every time God reaches out to us in love, beat God away. The first word has to be, Father, forgive. Because forgiveness is the bridge between God and us that only God can build. Our repentance is feeble and half-hearted. Our desire for God wanes. Our love of God is lukewarm, prone to falter when something new and shiny comes along. So God acts first. God speaks first. Speaks a word of forgiveness. And just as his words spoke into being a new world in the very beginning, so now they speak a new thing into existence. A new order of things where God's love, God's being in relationship with us is not predicated on what we do, but on what God did. Which is why on Sunday mornings, our call to confession usually isn't a reminder of just how horrible we all are. Pastor Tom and I hopefully aren't standing up here beating the pulpit, listing off all of the ways we are miserable wretches who need to beg God for mercy. Now the call to confession is itself a reminder of forgiveness. It's a word of hope. A word that declares not what we have done, but what Christ did. Because only in that knowledge, only in the assurance of the forgiveness that has already been extended to us, do we have the courage to acknowledge before God just how desperately we need that forgiveness. So this first word from the cross is surprising and a bit troubling and convicting, and it's also deeply, deeply comforting. This is a word we want to find in scripture. This is a word of hope for us, spoken by a man in unimaginable pain from a place of unimaginable love. We do not know what we are doing. But our prayer in this Lenten season is that we might know just a little bit more God's love. This is Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus and his prayer for us, that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses all knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Would you pray with me? Father, forgive us, for we do not know what we are doing. And Father, help us to forgive one another. May we live with the same expansive love that led you to the cross. May we lay down our pride that we might live in peace with our neighbor. And when we fail to do so, 
as you know we will, forgive us again. We cannot comprehend the sacrifice Jesus made for us, but we give you thanks and praise nonetheless. Help us to live in gratitude. Help us to live in love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.